I'm Nicholas Bornois of CapitalLink, and I would like to welcome you to today's podcast. The podcast series, Riding the Waves of a Lifetime, gives us the opportunity to discuss with maritime industry leaders who share with us career and life experiences, as well as their insight on the industry's direction, opportunities, and challenges. I would like to thank the Cambiaso Riso Group, a major global insurance broker and shipping agency, for sponsoring today's podcast. Today, we have the opportunity to discuss with Mr. Paolo D'Amico, one of the most influential and outspoken industry leaders. Mr. D'Amico is among the Lloyd's list of 100 most influential people in shipping. Paolo is a major ship owner and a maritime industry statesman. He has a highly successful career as a global ship owner, as he is at the head of a major shipping group active in the dry cargo and the product tankers uh, sectors, as well as in ship management. As an industry statesman, he is the chairman of Intertanko, the independent tanker owners association, and he's also active in several other organizations in the industry. As such, he has a broader institutional footprint and involvement with the maritime industry, and especially with the tanker sector, helping it address its challenges and shape its direction. The D'Amico Group is one of the oldest and most successful Italian ship owners with a global presence today in more than 10 maritime and financial centers worldwide. The group was founded in 1952, but its origins date back to the 1930s. In 1971, Paolo joined the family company with particular focus on the product tanker aspects of the business. Today, he is the executive chairman of the holding company, D'Amico Societa di Navigazione, with his cousin Cesare D'Amico being the chief executive officer. He is also the chairman and chief executive officer of D'Amico International Shipping, the product tanker arm of the group, which has been listed on the Milan Stock Exchange since 2007. He is currently serving his second two-year term as chairman of Intertanko. He was first elected in November 2018, succeeding at that time Dr. Nicolas Tsakos, the chief executive officer of TEN. As I mentioned, he is also active in several other industry organizations, including the Registro Italiano Navale, where he serves as chairman since 2020 and until 2023, and Confitarma, the Italian Ship Owners Confederation, where he served as president for three years between 2010 and 2012. He has received several awards and distinctions for his industry leadership. And in 2013, he was awarded the honorary title of Labor Knight, Cavaliere del Lavoro, by the president of the Italian Republic. I would like also to thank him for the excellent cooperation we have developed over the years. It has been a real privilege to interact with him and uh, the D'Amico group. Our discussion is going to include a brief trip down memory lane, then focus on today, and then we will look ahead. We will focus on three themes, sharing a few career and life experiences, then looking at topics that affect the broader shipping industry, and then topics that relate to the tanker industry. We will have uh, the opportunity to discuss with him for about an hour. Uh, our discussion is meant to be an in-depth 
insightful, authoritative discussion, not a quick run of the mill uh, touch upon topics. So we look forward to his, uh, uh, to our discussion and to his insight. And now I will uh, kindly ask uh, Paolo D'Amico to join us uh, to begin our discussion. Hello, Nicolas. <laughs> so thank you for joining us, Paolo. And I always, as I said, I admire your office. Uh, uh, it's a wonderful background that you have. Um, so you. you come from a major shipping family. And the question of how you got into shipping is kind of self-explanatory. But still, I mean, as I mentioned, uh, your, uh, the origins of the group go, go back to the 30s. So can you share with us how it all started, how it developed for yourself and for the group? And please share with us some highlights of the family's history and involvement with shipping. Now, the old thing, uh, let's start from a family first. I mean, the old thing uh, started from my grandfather in, uh, in the 30s. Uh, because he was um, a lumber trader. Lumber in those days was very important. And he was moving a huge amount of lumber, importing it in Italy. Uh, my father, who was um, not just 21, 22 in those days, and his brother joined my grandfather. And uh, they saw... Uh, there was a, a lot of chartering activity. My grandfather was chartering a lot of ships to move his lumber around. At that point, the, the two kids, I have to say, because it came from them, we start saying, why don't we uh, start owning our vessel instead of chartering them from third parties? And uh, one thing that I always... Uh, admire of my grandfather, even if I, unfortunately, I didn't know, knew him, but uh, is the fact that uh, he said, I mean, today, if your son of 20 comes with an idea, you probably say, okay, I'll think about later on, or, or, or probably you send him somewhere else. But in those days, my grandfather said, no, fine, let's, let's try, let's do it. And uh, I think that was a, a great move because everything started from there. Um, we own at the beginning of the war six vessel, vessels, and uh, unfortunately we, we, we lost all of them during the, the war. And, and then the thing restarted like everybody else with the Liberty ships and the Marshall Plan and so on. Uh, my father at a certain point, um, moved on his own company. There were seven brothers and, and uh, he moved with two brothers away from the rest of the company and went on, in, on, on his own. And the whole thing started there. For, let's say, my side uh, of his adventure, I, I end up in it. I mean, it is, it, it, I, I remember the first time I, I went on a tanker, was in Rotterdam, and I, I was seven years old. And, and since then, I, I always went on ships, and um, my father wanted me, when I finished my homework after school, he wanted me in the office. So for me to come to the office was a normal thing. 
and I was meeting all the managers and I had a, a beautiful relationship with them. So the office at the end of the day was my second home. In some ways probably was even the first one. And um, so when I finished school, my father just say, what do you want to do? And I said, I'll follow you. So he said, welcome on board then. And, and we all things started from there. So um, I think my story is very similar to many other son of ship owners, I suppose, because uh, there is a, such a, a merger between the father figure and, and the boss. And uh, that is, what is a unique thing. And so you, you really have this mix up of the family and, and the, the, the business activity. So for me, it was natural. Uh, and uh, I'm very happy I did it. I mean, I never had uh, other ideas on that. You know, we have the opportunity to discuss with a number of uh, second, third generation ship owners, and it is always really wonderful to see how, you know, in case like yours, you have the continuity, the tradition, the history, and all of that transcends into exactly the continuous development of, of the company. So thank you for sharing this with us. Now, let, let's discuss for a moment the profile and the operations of the D'Amico Group. You are one of the largest and most successful ship owners, Italian, but with a leading presence in this global industry. You're active in several shipping segments. And as I mentioned, you have a global network uh, around the world in major industry and financial hubs. So can you describe the group to us? Uh, we uh, operate a fleet, uh, own fleet of uh, 100 ships today. Uh, 38 are product carriers. We have a couple of container ships, and the difference are bulk carriers going from Andy up all the way up to mini capes. Uh, we have also uh, a portion of a fleet which is chartered in on long term, and some of them on the dry side are operated on short term. We we operate commercially out of uh, New York, London, Monaco, and Singapore, commercially and operationally, because we keep operation and, and, and chartering together. And uh, technically, we run our fleet out of Rome or Singapore, where we own a, a third-party ship management company. And... Um, and we man our ships out of India and uh, out of the uh, Philippines. Philippines for the dry cargo, Indians move for the tanker side. We still have some uh, Italian officers, but unfortunately, as it happens in, in Europe, uh, less and less Italian wants, want to board the, a tanker today. We, we are pushing a lot for it because um, I, I think we have a big, uh, big debit with our, our crew and the Italians have been the startup of all of everything in the past and 
if we are where we are in terms of quality and uh, of um, of success in chip management is is for them. So uh, for us, it's important to keep uh, a number of Italian seafarers, uh, even if it's more and more complicated. On uh, on the rest, uh, we of course we run we run different things as real estate and financial investments, but these are out, let's say, of the company perimeter. And um, I personally live in Rome. I I, I lived all my life, I'm excluding few years in London and New York. But uh, I lived all my life in Rome. I'm very happy to be here. And you see, today you don't you don't have any more as was in the past the the need to be on the market. So uh, communication today is such, and I have to say, after COVID, even more that we probably have to travel even less than we used in used before. So I live in Rome and uh, we operate from here and then I'm running the company with my cousin Cesare, who is my partner and he has a, exactly the same carbon copy story of my life. I mean. Wonderful. So you shared with us how you started. Um, can you possibly discuss a little bit uh, a few major milestones in your career and possibly a couple of major challenges that you had to deal with. And also I'm particularly uh, interested to, to see how, what it means and how it is to work for such a major family owned group, which also includes a publicly listed arm that you're heading. Uh, certainly my, the most important moment of my life, like I suppose for everybody, but it's been when, when I lost my father, because uh, here again, I, I didn't lose only my father, but I lost my boss, I lost uh, everything. I lost my guarantees of life, let's put it this way. Life for me before was quite easy. Afterwards, it was becoming a little bit more complicated. So uh, certainly, the, uh, I, I thought, okay, now holidays are over. I mean, uh, because to, to the sadness of, of the loss, you had also the fact that you have to take uh, first line of responsibilities in the company. And, uh, and I was 26. So um, I had to move on. Uh, thanks God, I did work with uh, with my father for for a few years. So I I learned a lot of things from him. I would say I learned everything from him, and um, and I kept going. The second moment, maybe of of thrill, let's say, has been when I I went to an American bank with my cousin. We ordered three ships, three new buildings, and we didn't have the money. So we went to, to the bank and it was a major American bank. And uh, I went through 
credit committees and things. I mean, to cut the story short, I remember this executive vice president who, who was lending the money and said, now, Paolo, now you have the money. Don't mess it up. So um, I had a line of credit of $105 million. And, and I have to say, I had to repay it in seven years. I did it in five. And uh, and that was another moment of my life where say, hey, I mean, <laughs> you are doing something. And um, so you are not anymore son of, you are the real thing. And, and those two moments have certainly been the most important for me. And afterwards, of course, I did borrow money a lot <laughs> more, but it became very easy to do it. It's always the first time, the most complicated one. Absolutely. Well, thank you for this, uh, you know, this wonderful uh, personal moments um, and a very important ones. So now let me focus on D'Amico International Shipping, of which we have been the chairman and the CEO. Now, the company was listed on the Milan Stock Exchange in 2007, and today it controls a fleet of 38 product tankers, 27 of which are MRs. So can you share with us a few major milestones in terms of the company's development? And also, I wanted to ask you, why did you choose the product tanker sector as opposed to crew tankers or to another segment? When... Um... In the 70s, when I joined the company, uh, we, we were already operating the normal mix-up of things. I mean, crude oil, and we had VLs, we had Aframax, and, and we started having product carriers. We, we, we owned three of them. And um, I remember discussing with my father. He was saying, look, uh, they are building a refinery in Saudi Arabia, and it's a big one. You will see, I don't know when, but it will happen, that we are going to move more products and less crude somewhere. And uh, because these refineries are, uh, are built in, in, on, uh, on a different place that where consumption is in a more distant place. So the ton mile is going to Okay, in those days, the ton mile didn't exist. I mean, we were just saying, we will need these ships because the clean cargos are going to, to increase terribly. As a matter of fact, he was right, because today the clean cargos are something like between 35 to 40 percent of the oil moved on sea. So uh, it, it, it took a big share. Um, when, uh, on the beginning of the eighties with my cousin, we, we discussed what we wanted to do in, in the future. And I said, look, I think the best thing for us is to concentrate on, on, on the type of industry more than going around everywhere. And, um, so we focus a lot on, on product carriers and, uh, we, and we started with uh, 
okay, we started in the early 70s with 20,000 tonnes, and then we moved on in the 30s, and, and now, as you said, we are only MRs and LR1s. And um, we, we, I would say we just kept going, but we built up our name in this segment, in this industry, the charter, charters, they start know, you know, knowing us and uh, they like the management and uh, we, we put up our name on this. Mm, I, we, we didn't think anymore about crude oil tankers, but not because they were good or bad, but just because it was a different story. When uh, in uh, 2007, we uh, start thinking of the flotation, uh, we actually, we started with the idea of listing the old company, but it's been the, uh, our financial advisor who, came to, uh, who said, no, it's better you limit to the tanker side, also because the tanker's story is something that people like, probably even more than the, the dry cargo one. So, so this had happened, and, and so we listed only a part of it. We did it in Milan because with an Italian name, it was easier for us, of course, and uh, also for investors, was easier to know us. And it's been an advantage because I have to say the Milan, Milan market is, is quite liquid. It's the, I, I keep having um, people asking me why you don't go to New York or you don't go to, to Oslo. I don't go to New York, first of all, because I do not have a dimension to go to New York. But uh, I don't go to Oslo because I'm very happy where I am. And uh, we, we had a fantastic result and a fantastic relationship with our Italian investor. So um, we listed the company and there started the let's say new life because of course one thing is when you are private another thing when you are you are, you are listed and uh, is um you start following your learning curve uh, understanding that you you have to communicate you have to talk you have to meet the people because uh, is a completely different story but i like it i have to say it's been a great experience and uh, I liked the quality of the, of the investors that I met up to now. So it's been a great experience. I mean, probably, I mean, I, I would do it again. Wonderful to hear. And by the way, I, I want to say we have been privileged to work with uh, D'Amico International Shipping for a number of years. Um, so I can attest uh, and, and second what you, you just mentioned. But let me ask one last question regarding the group. You know, at D'Amico, but also uh, on the tanker side, but also I see on the Balker side, you have focused on the strategy of fleet expansion, not only through owned vessels, but also through long-term chartered in vessels with purchase options. And when these are in the money, you can buy them. And that has been a major growth opportunity for you. 
Also, another very interesting aspect is we have uh, focused on Japanese built vessels mainly. So can you share with us the advantages of this so well specified and focused strategy? I would say, uh, first of all, it all started, uh, I have to say, from my cousin and on the dry cargo side. Uh, we were, we had to, let's say, build the dry cargo fleet. And uh, because uh, the dry cargo ships were by far less than the tankers, and in tankers we were already not only a fleet, but also a name and so on. So my cousin Cesare started this whole activity going to Japan and putting our name around in Japan. You know, I mean, Japanese are great people, but to conquer their trust, you need time. And uh, you must be patient and it's something that we did. He did a fantastic job in this. I, I, I can only, uh, I mean, I'm extremely happy to have him as a partner. And uh, uh, at certain point, we already built up a fleet of bulk carriers, and we start thinking why we don't do it the same also on product carriers. Our approach on tankers has always been uh, let's build a ship and give it on time charter to uh, to a major oil company. But then we we start let's say being a little bit more active on the on the spot on the spot activity, and uh, and there we we thought okay let's start with a couple of Japanese product carriers and then we'll go on. And, and so it happened. A purchase option is a normal thing you ask for. And of course, uh, at the end of the day, we are trader. If we are in the money, we do it. And um, I think was it. it was not really a, a strategy which was designed uh, on the desk. It was something, it was a normal evolution of what we were doing, uh, starting from dry cargo and then moving on on tankers. Great. So let me now, we have an hour in our discussion, let me turn now to the industry section. Uh, and I have a number of uh, important questions to, to ask you. Uh, you are, as I mentioned, now serving your second term as the chairman of Italy Tanko, and you have been very vocal on several critical issues trying to drive change and development to the right direction. So at Intertanko and also at uh, your group, you have been dealing with issues such as decarbonization, digitalization, ship safety and security. So let's try to devote a little bit of time to each one of them, starting with decarbonization. And the standard approach that I have is when you talk about decarbonization, you have three major topics. Who regulates the process? which are the fuels of the future and how to pay for it. So let's start with number one, who regulates what? Now you have been an ardent proponent that the IMO should be the global regulator. However, as we have seen at this point, we have a number of regional or national regulations potentially coming into play. 
So is there still a way to achieve uniformity and perceive uh, and pursue a, a global solution? I think yes, but unfortunately, you see, already too many people are in the arena and, and they, are, they are taking uh, uh, actions. Um, unfortunately, IMO, uh, we need one body and we, we are a global industry. And so we cannot go globally, operate globally and have and listen to too many people because we will get lost. But unfortunately, this is what is going to happen because you saw that the EU already moved in and 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 probably others will, will as you rightly say, will move in. This will, bring, yeah, but this will bring this will bring inefficiency and uh, this will bring also a higher cost at the final consumer because uh, we don't need that. Of course, IMO has its limit, probably has its limit due to the fact that he probably had to be reformed. I don't know, but one thing uh, always. Uh, I don't know, touch me a, a little bit. The thing that we talk about IMO like it's a body coming from uh, from the planet Pluto. I mean, uh, IMO is us. IMO is, is made by our countries. So we don't like the way it works. We change it. We discuss it. We reform it. But you don't scrap it in one side and try to do something different on the other side because you are confusing the system. And... Uh, we are extremely, you know, shipping is not a known industry, but now it's becoming known that if you look at the container ships, you, you cannot move a container around today. So you understand how much shipping is important. And so it is on oil and so it is on dry cargoes. We need to be ruled by as severe as you want. I mean, it's not a matter of, uh, of easy life. But let's try to talk to one establishment because, but as I said, unfortunately, this already is not happening because also some colleagues of mine are pushing a lot regional uh, system instead of a global one. I think it's a mistake. I, you know, most of the industry people that I speak with, as you mentioned, they, everybody uh, wants the IMO to be the global sole regulator. But at the same time, exactly, how do you achieve a solution whereby you may have uh, the European Union, China tomorrow, the US, uh, national, if you want entities that come up, they want, I mean, how can you enforce a global solution? It, it sounds very difficult, I think, even though it must be the, the best way to go. Yes, it's going to be more difficult if we have to follow all the regional ones. As you rightly said, China will come up with something, or the Asian uh, countries. Certainly, America will come with something, and then we have to follow everybody. Let's hope at least that we, there is a level of uniformity in what they are going to do and going to ask, because we cannot build a ship which can comply with <laughs> For whoever, I mean, it becomes impossible. Well, you know, we're at the end of the day, if you end up having a, a lot of regional or national regulations, that in a way 
will take away from the effectiveness of the IMO and will make things a lot more complicated and costly, as you mentioned. But anyway, let's go now to topic number two, the fuels of the future. We see an increasing number of companies uh, dealing uh, using LNG as a combustion fuel. At the same time, there are so many other options in development out there. Now, the D'Amico Group, uh, I, I know you have been uh, testing uh, biofuels. So how do you see this process of uh, the fuels of the future evolving and can there be a final outcome? I think we are going to have two phases, uh, a medium term, let's say, phase where you are going to have a mix of fuels. So you are going to have owners using LNG, owners are using biofuels, uh, owners are using methanol and, and so on. We moved on biofuels because it was the closest thing for our engines, existing engines, without thinking about retrofitting or doing any sort of, and, and the results are extremely positive. Of course, they are not at emission zero because you cannot be an emission zero today but they are certainly saving a lot of CO2. Uh, going ahead, and now you have all these uh, efficiency indexes coming in in, in 2023, the XI, the CII, and so, and, and so on and so forth. Coming them in force, uh, we will see what is going to happen, but certainly we, we are going to define and we are going to, um, to see the efficiency, the real efficiency of, of, of the ships, of a fleet, of a world fleet. Now, what I am uh, uh, not worried about, but I've been thinking about it a lot, uh, due to this uncertainty that we have today, very few owners are prepared to, to order new buildings and the existing fleet, even if it's been delivered a few years ago, they are just getting older, they're certainly not getting younger. So at certain point, if we, if we don't replace our vessel, we are going to have an old, old fleet and without knowing very well where to go. Because after, let's say, 2030, so in, um, in 10 years from now, we will start getting closer to, to the 2050 target. And, and there, what is going to be the fuel there? This is a big question mark. We, we have a lot of speculation. You talk about ammonia, hydrogen and such, but we know that hydrogen is not good as a fuel for ships because, because of the cubics, because you have to, to freeze it very uh, over 200 Celsius minus. And, 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 and so ammonia is toxic but could be the solution. Now, toxic is not a problem that it cannot, cannot be solved, it would be solved. But our all theories, how all this is going to happen, uh, this is, uh, I'm, I'm waiting for, let's say, the final user of our services to come up and say, 
okay, guys, now we have a problem here because we have to move energy somewhere and somehow. So how we want to do it? And probably there will start, I don't know, sort of project finance with long-term charters because it's the only way for the ship owners to change skin because here we have to change skin and, and to finance this huge investment that is going to happen. It's going to happen in what, 10 years, but it's going to happen. And, and certainly you cannot think that, okay, I'm, on speculation, I'm going to build an ammonia fuel ship. I mean, no way. I'm doing that if I'm sure that my, my ship is used by somebody and is guaranteed. Also because I think it is, it is very elementary, but of these ships are going, whatever they are going to be fueled by, but they are going to be them more expensive or our actual ones. So the, the capital intensity of our industry is going to grow terribly. Decarbonization, I mean, is a beautiful name, but uh, it's going to cost us a fortune. And now that brings me to the next question. How do you fund uh, or do you pay for it? I mean, again, we have seen a multitude of ideas uh, and options on the table. So is there one more practical or realistic method to achieve uh, funding or paying for it? I think the funding will be the usual one as far as there is a time charter on the other side. So I uh, will be, as I said, more sort of uh, project finance. Of course, the big guys, I, I remember LNG when I was, I mean, younger, uh, an LNG ship was always fixed at 20 years time charter and was always a, a project which was covered by a long term uh, contract. Then somebody with a deeper pocket, they, they start building them on, on speculation, fine. Probably uh, also on this round, this will happen, but are very limited number of candidates who can do it. So I would say the majority of the owners, they, they probably uh, will be looking for um, end users time charters and uh, and finance normally or they a lot of them will become just ship managers and run it for investment funds or god knows what so let, let me move on to the next question you are the head of a major industry organization so i wanted to ask you do you think that uh, the uh, shipping industry has an effective and unified way to make its voice heard on decarbonization, new fuels, or other industry issues. I mean, you have the council with uh, Intercargo, Intertanko, BIMCO, ICS, uh, interacting with IMO and other regulators. Also, we see a number of initiatives by new organizations, well-meant initiatives, but at the same time, do these lead to more fragmentation of effort instead of concentration of focus? So how do you see the shipping industry reinforcing its voice, visibility, and impact? It's up to us ship owners. Unfortunately, you are right. There is a fragmentation going on. And uh, before, 
was only the voice of ship owners. Today, it's that being the, the voice of ship owners, banks, uh, traders, uh, and so on and so forth. And everybody is, uh, is coming up with a statement. I think that we don't need statement here. We, we, we need a common ground, which makes sense, which is uh, economically feasible, which is transparent and is simple. We need simple things. We don't need complicated ones. Here again, we will obey to the most severe rules needed, but have to. There is no re, there is no need to be. Uh, I mean, we, we see everything flying today. To be to be frank, and uh, for my taste, is a little bit too much, and we are confusing only the system. I I agree with you. So. Let's now focus on technology and digitalization. I know that the Amico Group has made significant investments in this area. And uh, can you share with us what uh, areas you see as the most uh, affected by digitalization and where we can expect to see more progress looking ahead? But certainly in, uh, in the old days, SHEP was run by the crew uh, they, the, the ship used to send a, a cable once every three days, giving position, speed, consumption, and some basic uh, data. And that was it. I mean, and it was sort of disappearing from the radar because uh, communication were not, not that easy. I mean, not that easy. It was only through radio, and we had the radio officers. And after that, the satellite arrived. And already the satellite, I, and I, I'm, I remember that very well. I was impressed by, by the satellite system. And basically, already with the satellite, we, you were picking up the phone and calling the ship. That was a huge move forward in the communication system. Not only that has been the borderline where the ship was not anymore alone at sea, but was becoming something that you were talking and dealing with it daily. With digitalization, what is happening is substantial. One, we are moving away from, from paperwork. I mean, everything on the various log book we used to have on papers in the past, and we still have it today. Uh, also, those ones that we have to have by law and by, by rules are not going to be on paper, not any, anymore, but they are going to be digitalized. And not only the data will come on real time online to the shore offices. This means that we can, and this is our program, we can act, uh, number one, on the management of the logbooks from, uh, from shore. Uh, we can act with a number of sensors uh, already with the maintenance on uh, our equipment. And um, basically, we are going to leave the technical and if you want bureaucratic life of a ship on on the minute and is not anymore 
that when the superintendent was going on board and he was looking at the papers, it's not like going to be like that. Certainly this is going to facilitate a lot of things, but aggravate also others. Unfortunately, life is always like that. I mean, you solve a problem and you get another two ones coming up, but uh, because uh, the show staff is going to be more and more responsible. And maybe if you are not careful, the crew, uh, the seafarers risk to lose a little bit of, uh, of traction on responsibility of what is going on because Anyhow, I have a guy in the home office doing, doing the job. So uh, we have to be careful the way we use it. And, uh, but certainly this is going to improve uh, uh, terribly the quality of ship management and as consequence of this, the uh, safety and security of, uh, of our operation. Well, you, you led me to the next question. Um... You know, Atito Tanko and also uh, D'Amico, you have made a big push to increase uh, ship safety, security. Um, so, including crewing, uh, the well being of seafarers, including uh, uh, piracy, cybersecurity, a number of important topics. So, what are the latest uh, initiatives undertaken uh, in, in these areas? Uh, you see, as far as uh, uh, certainly we have been extremely uh, focused over the last 18 months on, on the COVID case, uh, the crew change. I, I keep saying that the seafarers have been the heroes of, uh, of uh, this period because they, they face it. Uh, I know there have been a lot of some problems around. We as a company, thanks God, we didn't face too many problems because our managers have been very active communicating, communicating with them on board, telling them the truth of what was going on. And say, I mean, uh, if I can, I'll, I'll uh, substitute you to this port or to that port, but it's not, nothing is guaranteed because we don't know what, what can happen. They did, I mean, they did miracles in, uh, in changing crews and, but of course somebody has been staying on board for quite a while. And I have to say, they, we didn't complain. They did their job and the thing was, was, was I mean, was, if we needed, if we needed a test of, uh, um, capability of our seafarers. We did it over the last year and a half and, and the results are great. So uh, I, I'm very happy about that. As far as safety in a general, on a general terms of piracy, and we have been facing before the Somali problem, but the Somalia was in, in some ways easier because once we put the armed guards on board, the whole thing, basically disappeared. Uh, it's been not easy to have the armed guards on board because it's something that even from a legal point of view is, is not that was not so clear in the old days. Now the problem is in West Africa, even if it's slowly 
uh, improving. But, uh, you know, in Somalia, with all respect for the Somali, but there was not a country. In West Africa, we have sovereign countries where they do not accept us coming with cowboys, with rifles and, and shooting at, at people. So, uh, and as Intertanko, we help uh, them to, um, to come up with the solution uh, and also we try to avoid to criticize because there have been a lot of critics on, on the country, but you have also to uh, understand uh, the problems of, of the people on, on the other side. And uh, I think uh, we in Intertanko, we did that and it's been very much appreciated because to criticize is absolutely useless. And, uh, uh, and I think uh, today, certainly in Nigeria, you are going to see some results. So uh, I, I hope it will improve. I'm sure it will improve because they really want to, to do it. So this is basically where we are. Now there is a start again of uh, piracy around Singapore area and, and Indonesia and so on. You know, I mean, it's very easy to board a ship and hijack a ship and ask for a ransom. So, uh, unfortunately, there are still a lot of a lot of poor people around, and and the temptation is very strong. Well, there have been improvements, and let's hope that, that this will continue. Now, let me move on to the next topic: ESG. It has become a core topic across all industry stakeholders. And your company specifically has made a big commitment to this. Actually, you recently announced that uh, the executive compensation would also be tied to ESG criteria. So can you please elaborate on this? But we think that ESG is going to be one of the main drivers in the future for, for shipping companies in the sense that banks, charters, they are going to look first at, the, at, at them and then probably looking to, for the rest of the company, how you, you operate and, and all the rest. So the, the thing of uh, linking the compensation also to ESG is to create that sense of responsibility in the management, in top, but also in medium management, in the respect of these three letters, which uh, uh, of course means environmental safety and governance, but are not only three letters, it's a matter of philosophy, it's a way of life. I, I have to say when, uh, um, when we start facing this problem, uh, my first reaction is, Yes, fine, but we are already doing all this. I mean, there is nothing new. But in fact, and I would say is so, but today we have to codify more what was the normal behavior of the past. And I can tell you in my in my calls that quarterly I have with the with the analyst, uh, with the investor analyst, 
we are start making a lot of questions about it and what we are doing and what we are not doing. So, yes, we we are we are, we intend even to put a, a member of a family as responsible of this thing because uh, we want to say that we put the, our face on it. There's not something that we are playing games with. Wonderful. So we are approaching uh, about an hour in our discussion. So let me move quickly to a couple of uh, concluding questions. Let me go into the tanker industry. Can I have your insight in terms of the drivers that will lead to a stronger market for tankers, especially for product tankers? Is it demand-driven, supply-driven, both? I would say both in the sense that uh, now supply is very low. So uh, we cannot say that we are really oversupplying with the system. Is the demand which is lacking uh, is mostly, I would say, jet fuel. The fact that we are not flying anymore because we are driving more or less as much as we did before the pandemic. And so the tracking and uh, and uh, all the rest of the system you know i mean mostly of the oil goes in uh, in transportation uh, fuels so uh, it's there that we are making our living unfortunately the flying is still a good third under the levels of what it used to be and you know we don't need that much to see the market moving upwards because you are always on, there is always a marginal percentage that, which is lacking, but unfortunately it's still there. And it's very much related to COVID, it's very much related to how, how people uh, will live, uh, will move, uh, will, uh, and uh, certainly what, what I'm seeing today on these cases that are starting again in UK and in Holland, uh, are quite, I quite, I'm quite worried about it. But anyhow, is there? And I think the, the, the problem is faster we go back to normal life and you will see the market back again. But let me ask you, we all discuss about uh, decarbonization, the greener economy, renewables and so on. So in this broad context, looking ahead, do you expect demand for, for oil and also for products to decrease? And will that have an impact on the tanker uh, segment? It's something to take in consideration because uh, we, we cannot say, I mean, we have all the, I mean, you saw Hertz bought 100,000 electric cars from Tesla uh, yesterday. Uh, I mean, we, these things are happening and we can say this, these are not going to have consequences on our market. But certainly it's going to be a longer process. It's not that oil is going to disappear tomorrow. Uh, not only today that we have a problem with coal and we have a problem also with gas. Uh, we see how oil is important because uh, how we are going to face this winter. Uh, if it's going to be a very cold winter, it's going to be a hell of a problem. And if we don't stop this thing of, I want to be, 
I want to be out of oil as fast as I can. When I do not have the alternative of it, I end, I end up in an energy crisis and we are building an energy crisis if we are not careful enough. Thank you. And as you very correctly pointed out, I think all these things, yeah, the trend is there, but it will take a long time before we really see, uh, I mean, the needle doesn't move in a day or in a month. Um, so let me ask as a concluding question, actually two concluding questions. One is, um, how do you see shipping and the world developing in the post-COVID era? But we will be moving uh, we will be operating our ships, uh, uh, moving maybe probably different commodities. Uh, we are not going, I mean, in extremely long term, we are not going to move oil. We are not probably going to move coal, but we certainly going still going to move soya and agri products. And we are probably going to, to move ammonia or God knows what. I mean, but I mean, there's no way that shipping will disappear. So it's up to the ship owner to upgrade himself to what the market is going to be in that moment. And the fuels are going to be different. I think there will be, as I said, I think we are going to have a mix of fuels. I don't think there will be one universal fuel for everything. Also because uh, container ships have their problem and dry cargo have their problem and tankers, they have their problem. So uh, it's not going to be as it, it is still today on, on fuel oil. So, I, don't think, I don't think LNG is going to be a long-term thing. I think it's something to, is going to be there for a while, but that is not going to make too much of a difference. I mean. So concluding question, uh, you are running a global shipping organization. At the same time, you are the head of a major industry organization. So I can imagine that the demands on your time must be enormous. And, I, and I'm grateful that you actually took an hour out of your extremely busy schedule for this podcast. So let me ask you, how, how do you balance business, statement life, family time? I mean, how do you balance it all? It must not be that easy, given... Oh, yes. I mean, you get used to it at a certain point. Uh, you need a very patient wife, of course. And, uh, but I mean, she knows me uh, close to 40 years that we are together. So, I mean, uh, uh, and, and, and she saw me growing in my career. So, it's not something that happened all together at once. Uh, and it's a matter of having a very good staff with you, uh, which organize your life. It's possible to do it without people by far more busy than me, and they are, they are around and <laughs> they are enjoying life too. Actually, they say if you want something done, give it to a busy man. So, <laughs> yes. so there we go. So, Paolo, thank you very much for um, really a tremendously insightful um, discussion. Again, as I mentioned, you, you combine both being a major global industry participant, but also being an industry statesman. So your, uh, your insight is extremely valuable, and, uh, and I thank you very much for uh, 
for being with us and also for all the cooperation we have had over the years. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you.